So this morning we actually begin in uh, Romans chapter 1. We begin in Romans chapter 1 and uh, last week we completed our time in uh, the gospel according to Matthew. And so we continue through the New Testament and look to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And so we'll begin in chapter 1 this morning, helping to look at exactly what is taking place, the purpose of Romans itself, and why the apostle wrote as he did. We'll also look, uh, we'll look at the greeting and so much of what Paul says concerning the greeting and uh, how he ties it to the gospel and how he ties it to uh, the salvation that uh, those in Rome were to lay hold of and to proclaim. And so we'll look at those things. I want to read for you, uh, we'll read Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and this morning we'll focus on verses 1 to 7. And it reads, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are, you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. As we look at this epistle and begin to introduce it to you, I want to make a point as to what is, what would we consider the central issue, the central theme, the thing upon which Paul is trying to not only solve but that which he is trying to uh, set before the elect in Rome. And essentially you'll find it as you work your way through the epistle itself and you begin to work your way down to all the way through the first chapter, uh, working your way through the second. And as you begin to deal with some of the things that are said all the way throughout uh, chapter 2 into 3, when he hands out the indictment upon man, demonstrating to man that there is nothing in him that's righteous, nothing upon which he can stake his claim of salvation except the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. 
But when we get there, what Paul is trying to answer is how can God be just and justifier? How can God be one who is just for judging those who are under condemnation? And how could he equally be one who justifies the wicked? And there's so much said to that end. And he deals with both Jew and Gentile alike. And he deals with all men. Uh, all men. And he deals with uh, the salvation and the hope that even the elect have. But also deals with the wrath of God and the coming condemnation upon those who reject Jesus Christ. But this epistle stands on that foundation. It stands upon the work of Jesus Christ in this way that he's explaining based on the character of God, that God himself can save and vindicate man and also judge man and not compromise anything about his essential character, nature, being and function. That is what Paul is trying to do, and that is what he's accomplishing as we move forward through this epistle. But we also look at the man whom God has called, and we look at the people to whom Paul was sent. And so in looking at this in these first couple of verses, we get to see who Paul is. We get to see who Paul the Apostle became as he was saved. And as we have been spending our time in Bible study in Acts, we look at a man who has been fully converted to the testimony of Jesus Christ, has repented of his sins and trusted in Christ alone unto salvation. And thus he is now tasked with bringing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the biblical gospel to the known world. And so he's coming to testify to the elect about who God is and about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And if we could sum up who Paul was, just as we look at these first couple of verses this morning, just in this introduction, we come to both who called him and we come to his purpose, because that's what he's testifying about, who called him and what his purpose is as he executes that calling. But we also come to what his message was, what his message is, and to whom he gave that message. And so for us, what that means is we take from Paul apostolic teaching, doctrine, the gospel itself, which deals with all the implications of the teachings of Christ, and we follow suit. And therein, we are being faithful to Christ himself when we are faithful to what is said here. But we do so in a manner that's consistent with the apostolic testimony and how they introduced themselves in the letters to the people to whom they were writing. And we do that because that is how Paul identified himself as he introduced the letter and greeted his readers. For he begins in the way that we read it. Verse one, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That is where he begins. He begins with his allegiance and faithfulness to Christ Jesus himself. That he immediately identifies himself as a bondservant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, a joint heir as well. But he is one who is completely in the commission of the one who sent him. And he says he's called as an apostle. He's a sent one. He's sent by Jesus Christ himself. He's an apostle of the Lord. And he is set apart in life, proclamation, and teaching for the gospel of God. Because in this whole epistle, he's leading people to those aspects. He's saying, I want you to live holy. I want you to teach that which is fitting for sound doctrine. And I want you to carry it forward in the name of Jesus Christ. And he's going to show you that there are some who will come along and misrepresent 
Christ in those ways and assault the body of Christ in those ways. He also shows down a few a few verses the consequence of unbelief and rejection of his testimony and the rejection of ultimately God himself and what that looks like. So he identifies himself as attached to Christ. His coming to them by way of his letter was to demonstrate to them what Christ had set out for them to know. It's why he introduces himself and in the same way essentially introduces the fact that I am fully wrapped up in Christ and his scheme, his teaching, his commandments. What he would have me say, what he would have me do. And so here he is introducing the essential nature of the church, that Jesus Christ is its undisputed head. So he demonstrates to them what Christ has set out for them to know and how Christ aimed to accomplish his mission through the apostle. He begins with doctrine. We say it all the time here. He begins with doctrine. He tells them who Christ is, what he's accomplished, what God had established in Christ for salvation for the elect and how that was going to come to pass and how it came to pass in the life of Paul. And that is the foundation upon which his apostolic credentials can be found, that he was born again by God's spirit and sent directly to them by Christ. So Paul began his introduction with doctrine. He began not with an appeal to personal experience. He didn't begin with a story to warm up the crowd or even break the ice. Paul was urgent. He was purposeful. And he was in his greeting. How he began to present himself before the Romans was in step with what he would do throughout the entire letter. It was no time for joking. It was no time to get the crowd up into an emotional frenzy. Or to tell a cute story to control sentiment. For Paul it was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was about the doctrine of election from the very first standpoint. It was about the creator himself. And it was about his judgment upon those who would reject God himself. That's where he starts the epistle. And so Paul is urgent. He's urgent. Paul's hope in this was certainly the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you'll also find that, listen to this, he wanted the people's faith to endure to the very end of the age. In his purview is the end of the church age, and he wants their faith to endure. It's not simply that he wanted to teach them. They weren't names on a spreadsheet. He wanted them to endure. And so he said, I want to come to you, and I want to benefit from the teaching that you receive because you're putting it into practice. And it's not that I only want to teach you, I want to fellowship with you in the teaching that we've received and in the teaching that I'm proclaiming. And so for this purpose, the apostle is sent to the Gentiles. He's one untimely born who followed the Great Commission. He says that about himself, one untimely born. But this greeting also shows something, and we hear a lot about it in the age in which we live, this thing of hope. We've talked about it as we looked at Peter about a month ago, that so much is said about hope and so much is misdefined about hope. Somebody will you know, put hope before you and then give you a mantra to live by, put hope before you and begin to talk about politics or put hope before you and begin to turn away from the teaching of Christ and offer you themselves and their programs and their 
there are other cleverly devised schemes, but not Paul. Paul based the hope of the church upon, upon the one who is the head of the church. Paul began to explain features of doctrine that anchor, uh, that anchor uh, and, and support the body itself and said, place your hope in those things and place your hope in the church. And so this is all in his greeting. This is all in his greeting because Paul knew that if he were to be urgent, he had to show them with urgency where their hope had to be staked. Because what we see coming up in chapter two is that there are competing, wicked, diabolical, demonic ideologies that are all invested in distracting them from their hope, otherwise known as the world system. And he began with where we ought to begin. All that Christ had accomplished was all that Christ had accomplished from the sending of his apostles in verse one, because that's what Paul says, that Christ sent me after my salvation. He sent me to you. And we saw that at the very end of Matthew 28, when we were looking at the Great Commission and how it functions not only as some itinerant because it has nothing to do with just going out and being some uh, individual missionary for hire. It's all about the church. The Great Commission points to how does the church function and how do people enter into the body of Christ through the proclamation of the testimony of Jesus Christ, a commission entrusted to those who are his disciples. And so Paul is building on that. And so even in this sense, he deals with what Christ had accomplished. First, he sent his apostles in verse one, called as an apostle. And then Christ himself had accomplished in their salvation. You look at the second part of verse one, set apart. Otherwise known as holiness, setting people apart for the gospel of God. For its First receipt of the gospel and then for its living out, not only living it out and not proclaiming it, but living in agreement with that which is proclaimed out of the mouth. Because that's what Christ had accomplished. And then he deals with divine election. He deals with divine election, which he promised beforehand, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, the consistency of scripture. How the Old Testament and the New go together in the fact that the New Covenant fulfills all the Old Covenants. So he deals with the fact that you're looking at Scripture and that is the anchor upon which your salvation stands. Because therein it testifies to what Christ has accomplished. He deals with divine election specifically. The fact that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Had a vicarious atonement, a propitiatory. That is to say, he satisfied the wrath of God against sinners, against the elect. A substitutionary atonement, whereby he stood as substitute for those who do not have the eternal resources to pay God back for eternal grievances against him. This is where Paul begins, all in the first couple of verses. And so he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You also see that there's agreement. Paul is an apostle is saying my testimony agrees with the prophets. And let me tell you this, 
the modern preacher's testimony had better not only agree with the apostle, it had better agree with the prophets. And I'm talking about in his life and in his proclamation. Because that is the standard upon which the church is established as that which was in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Christ, the head of the church. And this is where Paul begins in his epistle. Paul himself is not only he is certainly concerned with what God had accomplished in him, but he's not only concerned with what God had accomplished in him. He's not coming for testimony hour. He's not coming to simply give his testimony about what God has done and then just leave it at that. He's also interested in eschatology, the study of the end times, that which God will accomplish at the end of the age, that with with uh, with which God will accomplish in the future. And, you know, if you've had any interaction with Romans, as many of us have, that as you look forward, Paul gets very specific as we reach the middle chapters when he begins to talk about God's dealings with Israel and how he's kept for himself a remnant according to his grace. Paul is very much concerned with the entire redemptive scheme of what God has accomplished. And it starts in the very beginning of this letter. He gives them a letter. Why? Because this is what he wants them to know. This is what he wants them to know. And it's all a priority. We know that we have a looming threat that's out there known as the doctrinal triage, which, which our brothers have labored so faithfully to assault, as we have here. And we join them in that because you don't see that anywhere even in his introduction. Paul is saying, this is what Christ has accomplished. This is what he has accomplished in me. This is what I want you to know. And it all has to be upheld with the same uh, ferocity. But at the same time, you can't take away any of it or you're taking away the essential character and nature of who God is. And you're taking away the testimony about who God is. And you're taking away the substance of the proclamation of the testimony out of our mouths. You're essentially changing things about the very nature of his church. When you introduce these things, and we'll see it. We'll see it in, when we talk about uh, further down in Romans chapter 1 and the verses that so many are familiar with and only apply them to the world. But we see it happening in what is known as so-called, in these days, the church. Modern evangelicalism, the Western Christendom. But Paul is concerned with what God will accomplish in the future and had decreed beforehand from the scope of both temporal time and decree. Eternal decree, that is, because he says that he promised which he promised beforehand. He's talking to you about the very uh, self-existence of God himself. And how that self-existence of God works itself out as God himself is decreeing his redemptive plan all the way throughout the scripture. And how God has been active in the proclamation of that through the prophets. And we know that in some ways as Paul preaches and says what he says and writes letters and deals with things, that Paul himself knows that there are looming threats, whisper campaigns, assaults toward his person. People trying to deconstruct and take away and argue against the very work of salvation that Christ does for those whom he has elected. Paul knows that and he anticipates that. Which is why he's essentially saying in these very few verses, 
I'm going to introduce myself, but listen to this. In introducing myself, you're going to hear familiar voices. You ought to hear the teachings of Christ, and you ought to hear the prophets through me. Because that's who I tie myself to. That's who I'm with. Because that is the God who saved them and the God who saved me. So the focus of Paul is clear. It is not necessarily only about the prophets or his own apostleship. Certainly there is a place in which he does that in Corinthians where he begins to openly defend his apostleship. And in a way, he's always doing that. But here, those things are certainly vital, but he begins where we ought to begin. He is pointing to the very person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who established salvation for his believers, the one who establishes the church. But he's also dealing with Christ's headship over the church and his body. And listen to this, the effects of that. The consequences of that. How many men today get up and begin to talk to you about themselves and begin to talk to you about the great and grand work that they have done? And no matter what comes out of their mouths next, you know they have nothing to do with Christ. I don't care if they're talking about it. They have nothing to do with Christ because we have to start where Paul begins. We have to begin to, from our standpoint as the church, talk about apostolic teaching as they have received it from Christ. And then begin to uphold that and boast in that and glorify God in that and exalt the name of Jesus Christ in those things. He is concerned. And when I say concerned, I mean he is demonstrably concerned with Christ's power and how it's on displayed among his and how it is displayed among his people. And I'll tell you, modern evangelicalism uses those terms, God's power, Christ's power displayed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they begin to introduce some subjective program to show you that God needs help displaying his power. What I'm saying is much more specific than that. Paul is saying, I am not going to deviate away from what the prophets predicted. From what the prophets proclaimed, from what Christ has accomplished, and how we work all these things out, not only in the life of the church, but also as we demonstrate what he will do to unbelievers who reject him. And so Paul's proclamation and commission is, is very clear. He was set apart not only for salvation, he was, and he'll get to what that means for the body, but he was set apart for as, a, as an apostle for the gospel itself. So he's saying, I'm set apart to proclaim this. And then he's going to deal with the so should you. But listen, the apostle is not distinct from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He bears in himself the message. And Paul is saying that. And we know the implications for the church as we look at passages such as Ephesians chapter 1 all the way to 4. Where he works that out as to what does that look like for me? As I am a member of his body, how then ought I conduct myself according to gifts and offices? But God had, as we mentioned, decreed these things promised beforehand. That means many things, but it means this. No one is authorized to change them. No one is authorized to assault them and no one is authorized to make it about them. Because this is God's scheme. This is his plan. 
And his plans are perfect. This is how he redeems. This is how he rescues. And this is how he proves triumphant. And so no one can tamper with it. And that means not only as an abstract thought, but chronologically. No one can tamper with the chronology. It's why we have to teach things such as that which took place in the Old Testament. We have to teach that which, how uh, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And then we deal with the inception of the church. And then we deal with the end of the church age as it relates to those events. And then we deal with the eschaton. We have to do that. Because in that we're following his timeline. And it is the very mouth of Satan to say that either those things are not essential or that you ought not to teach them or that you ought not deal with them. Or that you ought to just lay them aside and invest your life into the world system. That's, that's the thinking of Satan. And so from here we see that these things we have to hold to because they're promised by the prophets. And Jesus himself authenticated that the prophets spoke for him. He said that. And not only did they speak for him, he was their Lord and is their Lord. So Paul's message, in a sense, is not distinct from the prophets in the Holy Scripture. And he says that. And he says, Christ's salvation in me demonstrates that there is consistency and agreement on all fronts. Paul's testimony is joined to theirs. And listen to this. Their testimonies were concerned with the kingship of Jesus Christ and his lordship. And Paul goes right there. Look at verse three concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. What this says in a literal sense in the languages is the seed of the son of David. You're talking about Abrahamic covenant. You're talking about the Davidic covenant. Paul's testimony, along with the prophets, is concerned not only with the kingdom, but the end times. How the kingdom is to be manifested. It's why he says what he says in verses 18 to 32 when he begins to talk about God's wrath upon unbelievers. It's because they will not serve his kingdom. They will not serve the king. They erect their own and they will be judged and his wrath poured out against them. And so he deals with the kingdom manifested, how the kingdom is going to be shown and revealed. So many make what is said, and we'll talk about it more in verses 18 to 32. They only deal with it as it relates to society, and it certainly deals with those things. But it also deals with how God's kingdom functions and how men despise his kingdom in favor of their own and what that looks like when God gives them up to it. When he says, you don't want my kingdom, fine, have your own, but I will destroy yours and you along with it. And so that is what that passage actually deals with because of what he says concerning the seed of David and the one who is to come. But Paul is not only concerned with the second coming, he's concerned with the first, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And what does he accomplish there? We talked about it, the substitutionary atonement for the elect. The prophetic testimony is concerned with his humanity. This is what he's saying. This is what God promised. He promised that there would be one who is God in human flesh, who came down and took upon himself, uh, uh, took upon himself human flesh, was born of a virgin, and thus was God in human flesh, fully God, fully man, and came to accomplish what he did by living a perfect, sinless, holy life, and thus established uh, for his elect their salvation. 
and was raised up after being crucified, raised up for their justification. He'll say that here. But he's concerned with both Christ in his humanity and deity, exactly who he is. According to the flesh. And then he talks about how he had been declared, not became. He had been declared the son of God in power. And here he says so much of what he says here in this greeting in places like Philippians, where he talks about God laying aside divine privileges. God, the son, Jesus laying aside, not his deity, not his nature. But when he comes to the earth, he lays aside divine privileges to accomplish what he will. And so he deals with that. And he'll deal with it in the, in, the, uh, in the verses and chapters that follow. But this is not only the testimony of the apostles according to Paul in this greeting, but the testimony of the prophets. There's a lot at stake. When we look at Romans, there's a lot of Old Testament at stake. And in fact, Isaiah is heavily quoted in Romans. But we must understand something. And I've said it. Even as it relates to the church. And even as it relates to individuals in the church. These things were divinely planned to occur and executed by God to divine precision and perfection. And they were declared beforehand. And so as I've said, God has set the terms already. We don't get to change them. We don't get to go, this isn't working because society has placed on us an urgent need for us to make some changes. So let's introduce a triage. Let's introduce some other things. Let's have a martyr complex that has nothing to do with scripture and begin to want to suffer for the sake of being well known. The Bible doesn't deal with that. It says, here's how you do it because God has established it. And in establishing, you had better not move that boundary. There's a lot of boundaries in life you can move that have no bearing on eternality, so to speak, related to the church. Meaning you can move from one place to the next. You can do X, Y, and Z. But related to the church, this is how my church functions. And you had better not do anything out of step with it. And that is essentially what Paul is saying to the Romans. And he's saying it because not simply because he's an apostle and it's coming from his mouth. He's saying it because God the Father has declared the power of the Son by the resurrection. It's the very reason we're here this morning. It's why we meet on this day. Because we too are declaring that that is what took place. And then by the salvation that we have, we are saying that we have been raised up in new life with him. That we are born again by a spirit. And we are an open testimony of that. When our voices flood the, either the pulpit or the streets, uh, we're, we're, we're saying that very thing. That the Son of God has been declared the Son of God in power. He didn't become God the Father testified to that which has already been established. But here we see it's not Paul's intent to simply talk about the gospel. Because so many do that today too. They talk about the gospel. They talk around the gospel. But Paul is, is aiming all that he's saying in the few verses that follow to tell us what the gospel is. And then what it has accomplished. And then how he was called according to it. And then how Christians are called according to it. 
And then how it has the power to save those whom God wills according to his power and his divine counsel related to the Trinity. And here he deals with standard. He deals with standard. Look at verse four, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name sake. Paul's not only talking about himself, he's dealing with how all the apostles in their testimony agree. They all agree with one another. And not only in some reductionistic approach of saying that we believe in the gospel. He's talking about they agree with the whole redemptive scheme of what God has accomplished. And so he's saying, I'm coming to you in that vein. I'm coming to you in that way. It is why the testimony of scripture related to the resurrection is vital. We have to uphold the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say, as even our brothers, uh, our brothers have been studying Revelation in the past, the resurrection of the dead to judgment and condemnation and the resurrection of the, of the believer to eternal life. Resurrection is that full testimony of the gospel. You cannot deny it because then if you deny that, you deny the apostles and the prophets. You deny them. Because if you deny the resurrection, you deny God's ability to raise those from the dead whom he has saved. You deny eternal life. You deny the giver of life, capital G. You deny his spirit. You deny his holiness. It goes on and on and on. And so Paul is proclaiming the nature of God and the gospel of God himself. He's saying when you proclaim the gospel, you're actually teaching people about what we call theology proper, the character and nature of who God is. You're teaching them who God is, what he has accomplished. And in teaching who God is, you're speaking of uh, you're speaking of God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. You're speaking of the very essence, nature and function of who God is. Verse five, you see a distinction through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. All of this. The calling of God to the sinner is in view. That's what he's dealing with. But before that, his calling the apostles to witness to the Christians is whom he first uses in the chronology of all this to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's also clear that faith rightly understood always leads to corresponding action. It's why he says obedience of faith. You know, there's so many people who want to make arguments and why and throw wide the broad, uh, throw wide the narrow gate and say, well, and they reason like this. Well, I believe those who are in false situations and persist in them, they could be of faith. They could come to the knowledge of faith in a way that they could stay in, in error and somehow meet with holiness. And this is what destroys that. Because, as I've said, Paul deals with how faith relates directly to obedience. 
that faith always carries with it corresponding action. The corresponding action being I'm going to place my allegiance, my life stake in that one who has called me. And so it is, in essence, he's explaining the pathway to holiness in Christ, true holiness. And so you I mean, you have and and you'll see it. In fact, I, I, I would argue in verses 18 to 31, you're dealing with people of faith. The issue is they have suppressed true righteousness and true faith. And they have placed their faith in Satan's ideologies, his kingdom, what he desires to do in terms of destroying mankind, stealing from them and killing them. They're people of faith. Paul is saying, no, there's an obedience of faith that shows allegiance to Christ and all those things and begins to not only counter what is said in the verses that will follow, but also begins to live apart from those things. And so true faith leads to corresponding action and testimony, and that's what Paul deals in these first few verses. And either that faith is authentic or it's false. It's authentic or false. There is no other in between. Paul here, as I mentioned, calls it the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. Understand this, that statement. It is what faith produces, and it is also what faith is founded upon. It's what faith produces, and it's what is it is founded upon. So he is an apostle sent to all the Gentiles to proclaim these things. Here it is plain. He's writing to believers. He's writing to believers. He says it. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Implicit in what is said, but explicit to those who are really studying these things, is Paul is dealing with particular redemption, what we know as limited atonement. He's dealing with that in this very text. He's saying, I'm not writing to a hypothetical group of people to do hypothetical things. Because we've said it in our time in looking at the Pharisees. Wicked men love hypotheticals. But when we look at Paul, he's dealing with very specific people. And saying, this is what God has accomplished in you. As it relates to giving them orders uh, from, that come from Christ himself. And so I, I've said it here that Paul is essentially... Working his way forward as Paul, in the way that he argues, he builds his arguments. And what he's going to weave his way through as we look at this text in the coming days, he's essentially, after this introduction, he's going to set his course to answer how can God be just and justifier without any compromise in his name and his purposes or his nature? Because what will follow in the consequence of unbelief is that you have individuals there who are justifying their sins. That has not changed one moment in the world in which we live. People who justify their sins and yet try to appear as though they're wise. And Paul will deal with that because Paul is saying if God is not just, 
He can't really justify, in a sense. And those people can go free. But Paul is going to capture not only what they have done to assault God and to prove that God is both just and justifier. But in Romans 3, he's going to say nobody can escape on their own. Nobody is righteous. None, none understand. And he's drawing what he's saying from Isaiah the prophet. So he's showing the very agreement that we spoke about this morning. But listen to this as we close in verse 7. To all who are beloved in God, of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week we'll look at Paul's thankfulness for the elect in Romans chapter 1 verses 8 to 15. But I want to provide a precursor to it. What Paul is very much interested in is their eternal salvation, their eternal hope, their sanctification, glorification. That is seeing Christ as he is and enjoying fellowship with him as the outcome of faith. He'll talk about that. But Paul is not interested in anything else apart from that. In fact, Paul is a clear example because there's so many today who want to say that Paul is like their role model, their spiritual idol or somebody who they believe they're much like. I get the sentiment, but then they lead you to a bunch of things that have nothing to do with how do I persevere in the faith and how am I made in the image of Christ? And we talked about that with the Great Commission, that it's not to make men and fashion them in the image of other men. It's to lead to the teachings of Jesus Christ and you are conformed into his image. You are made like him. And so Paul deals with that. Paul is setting his course to travel in that direction. And so many pick apart this letter and try to enjoy as some kind of fanciful fraternity, enjoy some of the features specifically without tying them to all that has been said in the introduction. Oh, I love the doctrine of justification. No, you love to be seen quoting the doctrine of justification. Oh, I love sanctification. No, you love people to think you read a lot about. It. But what I'm talking about is those who say, I want to I want to be about what the apostle was about because he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so I want to imitate Christ. And I want his church to be a reflection of what he said. And so you're seeing in these very few verses, again, we live in a time where people are very much acquainted with Christian speak. But what I'm showing you is we continue to make the same distinctions we were making in Matthew. We're making them in Romans. And Paul is very specific. He's saying this is what Christ has accomplished in me. This is what he accomplishes in those whom he has chosen. This is what he will do against those who do not believe. And this is what he will accomplish in his church. Both Jews and Gentiles. And he's showing that I want what God wants for them. And you'll see that in verses 18 to 15. We'll read it and then we'll end our time together in prayer. Verse 8 of Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God whom I serve and my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. 
And you see his motive. For I long to see you. I long to see you. Why? He said, you can lift me up. You can build me up. You can promote me through a PR campaign. No. I want to be with you. And here's why. That I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. That is, they, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. I want to be encouraged with you. And we'll talk about what that word means last week. Um, I'm sorry, next week. But, as a, but as, a, uh, as a precursor to that and understanding those things, he's talking about God's redemptive scheme. It's not just encouragement for its own sake. He's talking about we need to agree with what God will accomplish throughout his whole scheme and plan of redemption. And we need to thus not only agree with it, but encourage one another in that. That's what he's referring to. That I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He says, but I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. We'll stop there, but I'll only say this. That the man who is faithful to Christ and builds people up in the knowledge of Christ gets to enjoy the benefit and the spiritual gifts that emanate from that reality. It's the same way. You teach men falsely, guess what? You get to, to eat of the fruit of your false teaching in their lives. You teach men and women rightly concerning the truth in Christ, you benefit. And his saving work from the gifts that come from that teaching and the power of God's word. And that's where he will go next in the verses that follow. Uh, Let's pray.